Hey, Revelation 3, I'm going to refer to uh, verses 14 through 22, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to give you kind of a quick overview of this passage, and then I'm just going to zoom in on one verse in particular. So the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, are actual letters that were written to seven churches in that day. These are actual seven literal churches that existed in seven different cities in Asia Minor, which is modern-day western Turkey. And Jesus spoke to John when he was on the island of Patmos when he was imprisoned as an exile for his faith. And he appeared to him, and he had these revelations, these these encounters with God, so to speak. And Jesus said to him, I want you to write letters to these seven churches. So this one church is in a city called Laodicea. And this church in Laodicea is commonly known as the lukewarm church, right? Everybody knows and has, I'm sure, heard about that. If you've been saved more than a few weeks, you probably heard about the lukewarm church, right? So Jesus didn't have many kind things to say about the lukewarm church, did he? What did he say about the lukewarm church? Because you're not hot nor cold, I will puke you out of my mouth. The word literally means I will vomit you out. That's what it means. Now, Jesus said, you all make me sick. Isn't that strong, isn't it? But that's exactly what the text says. You make me sick. I can't stomach you. Come on now. Think about that. Now, when you think about Jesus, we often think about him as the meek and mild man of Jesus. He loves everybody. But I want to tell you that Jesus can be gangster at times, too. (laughs) And Jesus is strong. Jesus is, is authoritative. And Jesus hates sin. He hates sin, but more than, than sin, he hates. Look, people say, well, he, he loves sinners. Absolutely, he loves sinners, but he hates sin. Why? It cost him his life, guys. It cost him his life. He gave his life to destroy the power of sin over us. Not that we can just say, hey, I'm happy now. I'm, I'm saved and keep living the way we always live. Keep living like people in the world live. No, we become a new creation. We no longer continue in sin. It says in Romans six fourteen that sin shall have no dominion over you because you're not under law, but you're under grace. In Romans 6, 1, he said, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? So he didn't die to save us in our sins. He died to save us from our sins. When the angel appeared to Mary, he said, You shall call his name Jesus or Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. From their sins. So here's a church. A church. And he tells the church, Guys, you know, there's good things. Almost all of the seven churches he mentions, he commends them for things they did well. But five out of seven, he says, there's some things you need to address. There's some issues here. Some things that got to change. And when he speaks to this church, he says, you guys are comfortable, you're complacent, you're wealthy. You live in a very nice place. The economy's good where you live. Life is cozy and comfortable where you live. You go to church. You worship me. But 
there's a problem. You are neither cold nor hot. You're lukewarm. And as a result, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eyesop that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Jesus is talking to Christians when he says this, guys. You know, Laodicea was known, it was a very... Um, it was, a, it was a very strategic city. It had uh, great commerce. It, it was, had a medical school that actually produced what, the best ISAV you could buy at that time. They also were known for selling the finest white garments. They also produced gold. And Jesus looks at them and he said, you have all of this wealth, you have all of this affluence and comfort in your community just like Frisco, Texas. Did you see record sales on Good Friday weekend? Or Good Friday? Um, what are we saying Good Friday? Black Thursday, Good Friday. It's like Black Friday, right? It's not Good Friday, it's Black Friday. If anything black, it's not good. You know that, right? It's demonic Friday because it's, it's black. No, I'm just kidding. But the point is, the reality is, when it talks about that, it's saying, look, what happened? A record-breaking sales. In the history of this nation, ever recorded, there was more money spent on Black Friday this year than on ever before. And so in this article I read, which is in one of the major news companies, media, they actually showed pictures of people shopping in Frisco, Texas. Yeah. Of all the places in America they showed where they wanted to highlight affluence and wealth, they chose Frisco, Texas. Fox News, guys. Google it. And as I read the article, I went, man, this is a nice place, isn't it? And I had this is very interesting because the Lord had put in my heart this passage of Scripture, and I thought, this sounds like Laodicea was the ancient Frisco. I mean, they had, they had everything going for them. Comfortable. At ease. You could live here and, and, and have a really good life. And, and God's not against this stuff. God isn't anti, you know, God doesn't want us to be poor. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says God wants us to be poor. I know what it's like to struggle financially, and I know what it's like to not struggle financially. I know what it's like to have an abundance so I can help other people. And I tell you, I'd rather have abundance than lack. So God's not against this. But what he is against is when we put our confidence in things rather than in him. When we seek after the things of this world rather than him, God has an issue with that. When we rely more on what we can do, our resources, our abilities, all that we have, and not on the Holy Spirit, that's when we get ourselves in trouble. So he says, you think you're good. You know, you've got, 
You've got an amazing uh, church going on here in this city in Laodicea. And you say, I'm rich, you're wealthy, we have need of nothing. Look, our budget is being met. Our, our building is, is being filled up every week. And, uh, you know, God, things are amazing. But God looks at them and he says through the Apostle John that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Why? Because my presence isn't with you. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Again, guys, contrary to what we've been told throughout the years, Jesus is not speaking to sinners. This scripture verse, Revelation 3.20, is often quoted and given at altar calls and invitations at large mass evangelistic crusades. Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking and he wants you to open the door of your heart. And there's a picture by Holman Hunt that was painted that shows this. And, and the interesting thing is on that picture, you'll see that there's no handle on the outside of the door. And when he was asked about that, why is there no handle? He said, because it can only be opened from the inside. But he's not talking to sinners. He's speaking to a church collectively, and he's telling them that you guys are having church, you're going through all the motions, you're doing the right things, but unfortunately my presence isn't with you. I'm not in your midst. A church that was holding services where he was no longer recognized as a guest of honor. As in Laodicea, so it is today. Religious activity has become a counterfeit for the very presence of the Lord. Religious activity has become a counterfeit for the very presence of the Lord. What does that mean? There was a study that was done by the Barna Research Group in an article entitled Six Reasons Why Young Adults, Young Adult Christians Leave the Church. This study looked at all the reasons why young people who are raised in the church go to church, and then sometime the average age is around 15, things begin to change. And then a lot of times by the time they finish high school and they go into college, they walk away from the Lord. They walk away from their faith. They, they walk away from the church. The interesting thing is nearly three out of every five young adult Christians disconnect either permanently or for an extended period of time from church after the age of 17. Nearly two-thirds. In this study, they looked at the reasons. Why is it that they left the church, that they had no interest in church. And there were several reasons, but one of the things that I want to highlight to you is that teens and 20-somethings departed church as young adults is the primary reason, is they said, that there was no encounter or experience with God in their church. That was the number one reason. One-third said, church is boring. One quarter of the young adults said, faith is not relevant to me, my career, my interests. Some said the Bible is not taught clearly or often enough, 
But one-fifth of young adults who attended church as a teenager and later on ended up leaving said, God seems missing from my experience of church. God seems missing. Where's God? The church in Laodicea, we could ask the question, where was God? They were there. They were showing up. They were doing the right things. But God wasn't there. You know? I've said this before. There's nothing worse than attending a church that Jesus doesn't attend. Why would you want to go to a church that Jesus doesn't attend? Guys, he was knocking at the door. He was outside the church asking, will you open the door? Will you let me in to my church? Will you let me in to my church? Today, we have churches that are program-based. Program-based churches. Nothing wrong with programs. Nothing wrong with programs. I'm not against programs. But when our focus becomes on programs, and it's all about programs, something's missing. We have churches today that are personality-led. People connect with the leader or leaders, but again, nothing wrong with that, but there's a greater connection we're supposed to have. And so what happens in personality-led churches is when the, the personality leaves the church, the people leave the church. Because their eyes and their focus was not on Jesus, but was on a personality. Come on now. And I'm not saying you can't change churches. If your church is dead, you need to find a good church. Some churches, frankly, they're not going to come back. You know the old saying, it's easier to give birth than raise the dead. But the fact is, we can't be a people that have our eyes on man. Then we have churches that are preaching focused. Again, there's nothing wrong with preaching. We need great preaching. We should have powerful preaching in our churches. But a lot of times you go to these churches. You know, I've been in places recently where it becomes almost like this rock star mentality, this rock star culture, like who can preach the best? Who's the most articulate? Who, who's the most eloquent? Who can, who can bring across, you know, the most emotionally stirring message? Who's the best preacher? They have competitions. Who can preach best? And yet in many of these churches, there's no miracles. There's people that are not being delivered or healed. I saw on Facebook, someone I know is in India right now. And they're ministering in India. And they found, they, they found, a, they found a young man who had been extremely demon-possessed. And this guy, he was, he was actually very violent. He threatened to kill people. And it ended up that these Christians, these, these pastors, they ended up, they found this young man. And they said, we got to help this guy. we got to get him free. we got to see him. So they actually spent two weeks with him. They wouldn't leave him because they were afraid he was going to go and kill someone. 
and they spent two weeks praying and fasting until the demons came out of the man and he was set free. Two weeks with him, praying and fasting until this man was delivered. And someone commented on this post on Facebook and said, I believe I need delivered. I believe I have something like this going on in my life. Can you please help me? And the person that posted this story ended up saying, just ask Jesus. And I said, what's the whole point of your post? You know, Jesus is up on the mountain. And he comes down from the mountain. And he finds this man. He says, Jesus, I brought my son to your disciples. He's extremely demon-possessed. He's suicidal. He tries to throw himself in the fire. And I brought him to your disciples saying, help my son. But they weren't able to cast the demons out of him. Jesus did not respond and say, well, just ask God. God will help you. Like if the same spirit that is in me is in them. And so if they weren't able to do it, what makes you think that I'm able to do it? It must not be God's will. It must not be God's timing. Maybe God's trying to teach you a lesson. Maybe God is punishing you. All the religious nonsense because we don't have the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, bring the boy to me. And he looked around and he said, how long shall I put up with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring the boy to me. And as soon as the young boy came near Jesus, the demon in him began to manifest. Jesus spoke the word, cast the demon out, and he was healed. Guys, we have to recognize that what God wants to do through us requires that we move from a place of being program-based, personality-led, even preaching-centered, to a place where we become presence-oriented. Presence-oriented. It becomes all about knowing Him. It becomes all about pressing into His presence. It becomes all about being filled with His Spirit, realizing who we are and and what it is that He's given to us. And so the question that I want to ask us today is, if Jesus did not show up, would we even miss Him? The Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Samson and He knew it not. He knew it not. Contrary-wise, David cries out in Psalm 51, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. There's a sense of anguish and desperation and, and horror that David is saying, Look, Lord, I sinned, I failed, I've done evil against you, but the reality is, God, I can't live without your presence Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Without your Holy Spirit, without your presence, Lord, I can't do what you've called me to do. I can't bear this, Lord. I've got to have your presence. I've got to have your power in my life. One of Satan's most successful tactics is to distract people so that they pursue that which is of lesser or no significance than a life fully yielded to the Spirit. If the enemy cannot succeed with a strategy 
that will result in our destruction, he will settle for a plan that will culminate in our reduction. In other words, if he can't make us bad, he'll make us busy. And if we're so busy that we have no time to pray, we have no time to go to church, we have no time to seek after God, we have no time to press into his presence because we got all these things to do, the enemy rejoices because his strategy resulted in the common goal, whether you were become an evil person, whether you sin and you backslide and you do terrible things, or whether you just become a good religious person that isn't seeking God, that isn't walking in the presence and in the anointing, anointing of the Holy Spirit, he has won the victory because the common goal is that a life is your life, my life is no longer marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're good people. We can be good people, but we don't have the anointing. We don't have the glory. We don't have the presence. I don't talk about dreams and visions often, but the Bible says that dreams and visions are from the Lord. I'm not saying every dream or vision is from the Lord, but it says in Acts 2.17, in the last days, people would have dreams, they would have visions. I remember a time when I had a vision. And in this vision, I saw this mass, almost like a sea of people. There were great multitudes of people. And as I looked at this, I, I noticed that many of the people were weighed down. There was like this heavy oppression was upon them. Some of them were, were like bent over. You could, you could, in the dream, it was like, I, in this vision, it was like I felt the oppression. It was like this weight was upon them. They were bent over. They were walking under a burden. Some of them were on their knees. Some had collapsed and were laying prostrate on the ground. And then it was dark. It was so dark. And at that point... It was like the camera pans, and I began to see interspersed in this crowd were different individuals, different groups, and these people were different. This darkness was not having any effect upon them. They were standing upright. They were moving forward. It was almost like this force field was surrounding them and was protecting them from this darkness. And as I looked at that, what I heard in the dream was Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. What does that mean? It means this. It says, for darkness shall cover the earth, verse 2, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord has risen upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you. And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, my son, in this day, he said, it is imperative that my people learn how to walk in my glory, learn how to host my presence, learn how to carry my anointing in their life, because it's not going to be enough just to be a good person. Many good people are going to fall, are going to collapse. They're not going to be able to make it in some of the days that are before us. And it's not that they're evil, not at all. They're good people, but they're not full of the spirit of the living God. But God wants a people that are not just good, but a people that are full of his glory. 
Jesus said to good people, very good people, he said, I've called you guys, I've chosen you, you've borne much fruit. But he said to his disciples, very good men, he said, wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Don't you go out and preach the gospel because you can't do it in your own strength. You're not good enough, you're not powerful enough, you don't have what it takes. My servants, you need to wait until you are endued with power from on high. Referring to the infilling of the Holy Spirit that happened on the day of Pentecost and the subsequent call to nurture that presence. The Bible says that they continued steadfastly in prayer, in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in break of bread. They continued in this. They realized they needed more. Guys, what's going to make the difference today is the presence of God. There's so many people that are confused, that are disoriented, that are lost. There's so many people that are bound up by things. When we read the New Testament, and I've just been reading the book of Acts again, and, and I've been going through it, and I'm just going to just keep going through it, and I read. You can't miss it. It was the Holy Spirit that made the difference. You see, Luke wrote the book of Acts, didn't he? He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. The major theme of the Gospel of Luke is this, Jesus as the Son of Man. Mark is Jesus' suffering servant. Matthew is Jesus, the King of the Jews. John is Jesus, the Son of God. But Luke emphasizes his humanity, not his deity. And Luke also, not only in the Gospel, but in the book of Acts, also highlights prayer more than any other writer. He talks about the Holy Spirit more than any other writer as well. What's the point? Every miracle Jesus did, he did as a man who was filled with the Spirit. He did as a man who prayed. Only Luke highlights Jesus praying in certain specific events that even the other gospel writers don't even mention. Luke talks about it. Why? Jesus did what he did, not as God in the flesh, but as a man full of the Spirit. God didn't need to pray. Luke 5, 16, Jesus often withdrew into the wilderness to pray. God doesn't need to often withdraw into the wilderness to pray. (laughs) Even though he is God and was God and always is God, He put aside his deity. He put aside his divine attributes. He became a man filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came upon him when he was baptized. John's Gospel says, and remained upon him. And he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. How did he do that? Because Acts 10.38 says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Jesus spent much time in prayer to access the power of the Holy Spirit. This is really old school. Look at we want everything today to be modern, and I, I like I like many things being up to date. I don't think God's you know really minds things being modern, but when it comes to the scriptures, we cannot compromise what the scriptures teach. The scriptures are eternal; they never change. 
And the way of the cross is a way of denial and dependence upon God. It's dependence upon God. It means i got to pray. It means I can't do what God's called me to do without the Holy Spirit. And I need to draw from these wells. I need to draw from the Holy Spirit. Even after I've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, I need to draw from the Holy Spirit. And so I need to access the Spirit. Hebrews 1 verse 9 says this, speaking of Jesus. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Jesus loved righteousness. He hated lawlessness or iniquity. Therefore, God, your God, has what? Anointed you. The word anointed means to rub with oil. He's anointed you. The very name Christ, Christos, means to rub with oil. The one who's smeared with oil. The anointed one. God, your God, has anointed you, Jesus, God anointed Jesus, do you see that? With the oil of gladness, more than your companions. Jesus was anointed because he loved righteousness. He hated lawlessness. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, Jesus was heard Because of his godly fear. It's a very interesting word, godly fear. It's a very interesting Greek word. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's not the normal Greek word, phobos. It's a different word. And it literally means this. It means to walk circumspectly. It means to be cautious, to be concerned, to be careful. To walk circumspectly. The classic edition of the Amplified Bible puts it this way. That Jesus was heard because of his reverence toward God. His godly fear. His piety. In that he shrank from the horrors of separation from the bright presence of the Father. What did he do? Why did Jesus live Why did Jesus hate sin? Why did he hate iniquity and love righteousness? Because he knows that sin separates us from the presence or the glory of God. For all has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. So Jesus said, there's nothing that's more precious to me. There's nothing that I value more than the presence of the Father. And so he literally shrank from anything. And he looked and he said, I couldn't handle that. I couldn't take it. The horror, to him it would be a horrible thing to be separated from the presence of his father. Wow. There's no intimation. If you read Isaiah 53, if you read Psalm 22, there's no intimation in any of these places, or even in the Gospels, that when Jesus prayed, he prayed to be saved from the mere act of dying. In fact, in John chapter 12, verse 27 and 28, the exact antithesis is revealed. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I came to this hour. 
What did he say? Father, glorify your name. He wasn't shrinking back from the cross. When he prayed in the garden, not my will, remove this cup from me. He wasn't saying, Father, I'm not willing to go to the cross. There was something greater. When the Bible says that he was able to be saved, the one who heard him was able to save him from death. What Jesus feared was the hiding of the Father's countenance. One commentator says the cup of death he prayed to be freed from was not corporal, but spiritual death. That is the temporary separation of his human soul from the light of God's countenance. Did you guys hear that this morning? The temporary separation of his human soul from the light of God's countenance. So when he's on the cross and all the sins of the world are placed upon him, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians. When he's hanging there on the cross, when all of the sins of the world, of the previous generation, of that generation, of every person, of every man, of every woman, of every child that would ever live, when all of the sins of the world were heaped upon him and he was hanging on the cross, he yelled out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Meaning, the Father could not look upon the Son because the Son had become a sin offering. I said this before. You know, Jesus did not die of crucifixion. When they came to him, he's hanging on the cross. And there are others around him. They do to accelerate because it was a high holiday. In order to take them down from the cross, what they would do is they would break their legs to accelerate the death process. When you're hanging on a cross and those spikes went through your wrists and your feet were in one place, and you began to suffocate. You would die of suffocation. And so what they would do is they push themselves up to gasp, to get breath, to extend their life on that cross. It would be common for them to be on there three to five days. Not uncommon, at least. But when they came to Jesus, the Bible says he was already dead. So they didn't need to break any of his bones, which fulfilled the prophecy that none of his bones shall be broken. So what did they do? Nevertheless, to make sure that he's dead, they took a spear, one of the Roman soldiers did, and thrust it into his side. And flowing out of his side was blood and water. Some believe that Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was praying, and the Bible says that he began to sweat like great drops of blood, that that was literal. That blood was coming out of his ducts. That he was actually sweating blood. The only explanation for this is the pericardium sac around the heart ruptures with the body fluids and the blood mix. But you can't survive that. 
You die quickly if that happens to you. And the scripture tells us that when he was in there in extreme agony, that an angel of the Lord came and ministered to him. And the idea is not only that the angel came to comfort him or to physically restore him, but that this angel literally came and saved him from dying in the garden because he had to go to the cross. He couldn't die in the garden. He had to go to the cross. So when Jesus is on the cross and they put that spear in his side and the blood and the water is mixed and flows out of him, evidently Jesus died of a broken heart. The pericardium sac had ruptured under extreme conditions. That pericardium sac will do that, will burst, and people will die. Jesus died of a broken heart. What was it? It wasn't that he loved, he, he didn't want to go to the cross, but the pain, the anguish of being separated from the Father, being separated because of what happened. Moses had led the children of Israel through the wilderness. It was almost the end of 40 years, and he was about to bring them into the promised land. You know, he ended up striking the rock and disqualified himself from doing that. But the children of Israel had complained. They tested God. And the Lord finally spoke to Moses in Exodus 33 and said, Depart and go up from here. You and the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. But the Lord says this, and I will send my angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen to this. For I will not go up in your midst, lest... I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. I'll give you the promise, but you're not going to have my presence. Most people would have said, hey, God, I get it. You're right. We are stiff-necked. We certainly don't deserve you to come with us. Yeah, just send your angel. As long as we go in and we get the milk and the honey and all the promises and all the things you you have sworn you would give to us, that's good. But Moses was different. Moses continues in verse 15 and he says, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? In other words, he would not settle for the promise without the presence. You see, prayer is all about communion. You realize that. A lot of Christians, they just pray and they ask God for stuff. Give me this, give me that. Oh God, bless me, do this and that. But that's not the way Jesus prayed. I'm not saying there isn't a place to ask God for things. That's called petition. Make your petition or your request known. But I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying prayer, as God intended, is all about communion with him. It's about relationship. 
It's like spending time together. It's about being present with one another. And prayer as God intended is delighting more in his person and presence than in his promises and provision. Prayer as God intended is more about his person and presence than his promises and provision. You know, Psalm 37, verse 4, we know that verse. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the what? Desires of your heart. Now, it doesn't mean to say, if you're good, Santa Claus will give you a gift. Okay? That's not what he's saying. He says, delight yourself. The word in Hebrew is a very interesting word. It literally means to become delicate. And the idea is it means to be supple, to become delicate. And the idea is a person who comes before God with a sense of, God, I just want to know you. It was used of, of, a, of a bride when she would come before her husband and there was such a, a sense of just wanting to, to be with one another. You know, I often think about this. When Lynn and I first started seeing each other, and we were very young, you know, one of the things we'd say is like, so what do you want to do? Do you remember that? It's like, I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, what if we do this? Yeah, that's okay. Like, it was just like, I don't care what we do. I just want to be with you. Do you, you, get, you see what I'm saying? I just want to be with you. I don't care what we do. When you love someone, it doesn't matter what you do. You just want to be with them. And it's like, oh, wait, what happens? Opposites attract, right? And so when you first love someone, you do crazy things. Right? You, might, you, know, you might go shopping like on Black Friday. Right? Maybe you'll go rock climbing. Like I, I used to go shopping, and now I don't. I've been delivered you know, from, from man-pleasing. You know, I, I'm, you know, I'm just kidding. But the whole point is there's things you do because why? You just want to be with the person. So when the Bible says delight yourself in the Lord, it isn't saying... Make sure that you, you know, check all the boxes. Okay, God likes this, God likes that, God likes that. Check, check, check. Now he's going to be happy with me. Good. Right? That's not what it's about. Delight yourself in the Lord. Not in what he can give you. Not in what he can do for you. Not in even how you live. Even though it's important to live a holy life. But delight yourself in the Lord. Make him your delight. Make him your prize. Make his presence your prize. Make it about him. Lord, I just want to know you. I just want to hang out with you. I don't care what we do. Like, I'll move to Africa. I don't care as long as I have you. I'll do this. I don't care. I'll work this job. I won't complain about it because I have you and the joy of the Lord is my strength.